So I remember, it was a long, it seems like a really long time ago, uh, we all have our different Christian uh, Christmas traditions, and uh, one of the traditions that we had as a family was that we would go to my aunt's house on Christmas Eve, and uh, so very early on in our marriage, uh, we had uh, a couple of boys at that point. We have five right now, and they're out of the house pretty much. So it was a long time ago. But I remember it was a cold winter night, and we were going to my aunt's house, and we were parked, and you had to walk up a hill and to get up to the house and stuff. And it was, it was cold, and it was snowy, and it was slippery. And I remember walking up there and my second boy Dusty was just a little baby and I had him in my arms you know he had him all bundled up and I was walking and there was they had this log that you pull up to and you know that's how far you pull your car up to and so I was stepping I thought I'd step on the log and then over the log and I had him in my arms and I stepped on the log and my foot went out from under me and I literally was like laying flat up in the air and it's one of those times where you have those it seems like time stops and you have a couple of thoughts like you're going this isn't going to turn out well it's like oh crap <laughs> it's like what am I going to do and then you kind of come to a you just kind of immediately come to a decision that whatever happens you're going to take the hit right and so I did. I mean, I landed right flat on my back. I mean, it was just like, but, you know, I had the baby here, you know, Dusty here. But it was one of those things where you're kind of terrified and you're just kind of like going, oh, what a, and you just, you just say, I'm going to take the hit. And, you know, you just say, this is going to hurt. <laughs> it did. It really hurt. And, uh, but I was thinking about that as I was preparing for the message this weekend. And I was thinking, that is a minuscule way but it's a, a way to maybe begin to illustrate what happened when Jesus Christ came to earth. Because he came to earth for one purpose, to take the hit for us. Because we were just like the baby. We were helpless in his arms, and we needed somebody to come alongside of us, swaddle us together, and protect us, and save us. And essentially, that's what Jesus did. That's really what the incarnation is. And that's really what we want to talk about this week. I want to talk about some misunderstandings about Jesus' birth. And we use the word incarnation, and maybe you used it or you've heard it. It just means simply that God took upon himself human flesh. God became a man, right? And essentially, that's what the incarnation is. But there's misunderstandings. People have different ideas about it, and there's a lot of uh, confusion in some uh, areas. So I want to kind of clear up as much confusion as I can. Uh, so I have five points, and if you, you got your bulletin, you might want to pull that out. These are the five points that we're going to go through, and hopefully the last point that I bring will be kind of a point of application, and it may be a surprising point of application. You may have never thought of the incarnation as uh, the way I'm going to present it uh, this weekend. So the first thing that I want to clear up or that we want to be clear on is that the birth of Jesus was not his beginning. Many people think that Jesus began at his, at his birth, that, that his start was his birth. Many Christians believe that Jesus began at his birth. But what the Bible tells us is that God, uh, Jesus, was completely God, but he was also completely human. He was the God-man, and he was born as a baby. 
Um, he went through the physical development just like any other baby, just like any other child, just like any other young person, just like any other teenager, just like any other young adult. And we are told in the scriptures that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God. He is without beginning. He is without end. He is eternal. John describes Jesus. Now, it's interesting because John's gospel doesn't give us a birth narrative. John begins his gospel essentially with Jesus being roughly in his late 20s, early 30s, his public ministry. He's already grown up, right? And so let me read you what John says. And when you see the word word, okay, it means it's talking about Jesus because John, later on as you read that chapter, he, he, he deciphers that word and he says he's talking about Jesus. And he says this, and this is very similar if you've read the book of Genesis, the first couple lines of Genesis. This is what John's kind of using kind of as a model. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not He became God. He was a lesser God. It's not saying that. He is God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, notice, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life, uh, and that life was the light of all mankind. So, so the birth marks the uh, eternal Son entering physically into His own creation. He created the heavens and the earth. He created us in His image, and so now He's entering into the world that He created. He became one of us and took upon Himself human flesh. Now, what does that mean? And maybe you've never thought through that because it's quite, it's quite striking. He grew up. He learned his colors. My little grandson, Jeremiah, is a little, two and a half, roughly, and he knows his colors. He had a balloon, and I said, you know, I said, what color is orange? You know, he's get, before I can get it out, he, so he knows his colors, but Jesus had to learn his colors. He had to learn to count to ten. He had to learn to read and write. He had to learn probably learned the trade of carpentry from his father Joseph. We, we talked about this last weekend that probably Joseph was with Jesus through his late teenage years. So he learned the trade. Uh, he grew, he thirsted, he hungered, he wept, he slept, he sweated, he bled, he died. In, in Luke 2.52 it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So this almost speaks of his emotional, his physical, and his spiritual development. There was growth. He grew. Even by the age 12, uh, you, Luke told, tells us that Jesus was filled with wisdom. Not because he got it all at once, always had it, but because he was always learning. Jesus had to learn just like you and I. His human mind and heart developed. He grew mentally and emotionally just as he grew physically. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submissions. Son, uh, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The idea I want you to see there is that there was learning. There was learning. 
The incarnation at Christmas means very simply this. God has landed. God has landed in his own creation. And he came on a mission. He was the only one who could carry out the mission. And to reject the, re the incarnation is to reject Christianity. It's the heart of Christianity. If you reject the, the incarnation, if you reject that, you reject the heart of Christianity. So that's the first thing, that Jesus didn't begin at his birth. Secondly, the birth of Jesus fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies. There are many Old Testament. I don't have time to go into all of them, but let me give you some of the highlights. First, we're told in uh, Isaiah 7.14 uh, that he would be born of a virgin. Uh, it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Now what's interesting there is many people say, well, that's not really talking about Mary. Uh, essentially that's talking about something in Isaiah's day. But it's a, it's a picture of what was happening in Isaiah's day. And probably the son of I Isaiah was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But also there's a further fulfillment. There's an ultimate fulfillment. There's a final fulfillment. Just like when they brought lambs, and they would bring lambs and lambs and lambs for the sacrifice. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what John was saying, he's the once and for all Lamb. He's the final Lamb. He's the ultimate fulfillment. Well, in the same way, the, ver the, the, the birth of, of, of uh, probably Isaiah's son was a fulfillment of that scripture. But ultimately, Mary would be the ultimate fulfillment. And this was written seven, probably six to seven hundred years before Jesus' birth. Um, his place of birth, um, Micah 5.2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So the birthplace of the Messiah was known. And by the way, it's very interesting, if you read the Gospels, <clears throat> Everybody knew where Jesus was going to be born. They knew he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. In fact, uh, let me read you just a couple of verses from Matthew because this, we'll talk about this. Um, it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the, king of, uh, the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Now, this is a problem because Herod is the king of the Jews. So this is, a competing, this is a competing king. And Herod is not looking for competition. In fact, there's one thing he wants to do with the competition, and that is kill him. So uh, you'll notice that. Um, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's uh, chief priests and teachers of the law and asked them where the Messiah was to be born... So in other words, he's gathering all the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law, and they're saying, where is this king, this Messiah, supposed to be born? And notice what they say. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. So what they're, what they're doing there is they're quoting the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, Mike, prophet Micah 5, 2. They're, they're quoting just what we read. So in other words, they're saying, yes, we know where he's supposed to be born, the birthplace. And that's hundreds of years before. Now, we don't know how long Mary and Joseph 
after the birth of Jesus remained in Bethlehem. We don't know how long they remained there, but it, it's likely they spent a little bit of time there. Uh, because after his birth, wise men came from the east. And, and this is the Matthew account where they're asking, where is he? Where? And they say, well, in, uh, he, he's going to be in uh, Bethlehem. And uh, so Herod says to them, he says, well, listen, when you find the king, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. And of course, you know, if you read the gospel account of Matthew, he basically says that Herod had no intent at all to worship him, was going to try to kill him. But interestingly enough, the, the angels come and basically say to the, the Magi not to go back to Herod. And they also warn Joseph, and Joseph is told, you need to flee to Egypt, you need to go to Egypt and protect Mary and Jesus. You need to protect your family. So Joseph goes to Egypt. Now, here's another prediction, and that sets up the next prediction, and that's Hosea 11.1, 1, because it says that the, this Messiah, this king, would be called out of Egypt. Now notice he's been in, he's in Bethlehem, but how does he get to Egypt? Because Herod wants to kill him. So Herod, in a way, is fulfilling the scriptures, because he's causing Joseph and Mary and Jesus to go down to Egypt. So they're down in Egypt now, right? And it says this, when, it, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. I called my son. And so Joseph is told uh, later on, after he goes, takes Mary and Jesus down to Egypt, he's told later on by an angel, you can go back because Herod is gone. Herod is no longer in power. Um, so Jesus probably at that point worked in the carpentry business with his father for a number of years, but he had to come out of Egypt just like the people. Interesting, there's an interesting parallel. The people came out of Egypt and Moses led them out of Egypt to a promised land, out of slavery into a land of freedom, a land, a promised land. That was essentially the idea. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus came to lead us out of the Egypt, our own Egypt, which is slavery, but it's not slavery because we have slave masters, it's because we have this, we're slaves to sin. And so what Jesus does is he leads us out of slavery and he leads us into freedom. And essentially Jesus is the ultimate or the final Moses, but he leads us out of Egypt, okay? The, the next, uh, let me give you one more prophecy. And this is an amazing prophecy, I mean, when you read it. This is from the book of Isaiah, that he was a child, but he was also a mighty king. Almighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. For to, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end, and he will, be, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So we see here that he's going to be of the reign of David. He's going to be of a descendant of David. He's going to reign forever. And notice it says he is, a child is born, okay, but a, and a son is given. Uh, and then it says that he's the wonderful counselor, but it also says he is mighty God. Mighty God. And so he is called a child, a son, a wonderful counselor, and mighty God. He would reign on David's throne forever. So these are all the predictions of what would happen. So Jesus, his birth, was prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled. Many of these prophecies are fulfilled in the, the New Testament. Number three, 
The birth of Jesus is one of the mysteries of the Bible. The Bible has a lot of mysteries. And you know what I found? That some people just don't like mysteries. <laughs> mysteries are to be solved, and not to be held. And so there's a number of things you have to hold in tension, right? And Scripture doesn't explain things. Like, how did God make the heavens and the earth? doesn't tell us. He spoke. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a scientific explanation. Have no idea. It just says God spoke and it was. So it's not trying to explain that, but there's a mystery around that, right? So there's a lot of those mysteries in scriptures. Jesus comes to Mary, who is a virgin, says, you're going to have a baby, but it's not going to be, you're not going to be with a man somehow. The, 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 the power of God, the presence of God is going to overpower you and, and, and you will have this child and it will be part, it, it's going to be fully God and fully man. And and, and Mary goes, well, I don't understand this. It's a, and it's a mystery. And we, even today we, we say it's a mystery. We don't understand it. Um, how did Mary become pregnant? We don't know. Um, how, can Jesus, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? It's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. Um, by the way, that's called, the theological term for that is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Now, some of the things I'm talking about, the virgin birth and the hypostatic union, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and those two are not mixed. They are, he is completely God, he is completely man at the same time. Don't understand that, it's a mystery. But those are the things that many times what we tend to do is we try to explain a mystery. Now, when we do that, what we tend to do is we tend to emphasize one part over another. And so what happens is many times, for instance, in, as we study Jesus, Many times people will, will emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ or his godness. Uh, or some people will emphasize his humanity over his deity. And so what we end up is, is we end up with cults. And we up, end up with heresies. And, and let me just give you a common one. This is a common one. And actually we have people uh, today, churches today, that hold to this. It's called Gnosticism. Let me just give you just a real, like a one-minute uh, definition of Gnosticism. Some of you are sitting there going, oh, right, I don't know what I think about that. You know, but, but some of you are going, yeah, yeah, come on. And that's why I'm doing this. All right. So let me, let me help you out here. So Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that, that matter was evil. So that anything matter, human bodies, you know, <laughs> evil. But the spirit is good. The spirit is light. The spirit is good so spirit good matter bad body bad so so the logic goes that jesus couldn't be fully human because if matter is bad then god can't be bad so god could never take upon himself human flesh because matter is evil matter is bad he couldn't do that so jesus didn't really become a physical man he became kind of a mirage or whatever so he wasn't really born as a human being. The Gnostics rejected the incarnation of Jesus. And by the way, the modern day uh, group that, that holds to Gnosticism is the Jehovah Witnesses. They don't hold to the incarnation. They don't hold to the virgin birth. Uh, and part of the reason is because they hold this Gnostic view of Jesus. They, they believe that Jesus is a created being, that he is an eternal Okay, so just interestingly enough, I want to read you a statement. This is a, an early statement. It's 451. 
uh, AD. And it's from the Council of Chal Chalcedon. And basically what it was is they're, they're talking about the two natures of Christ, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And here's what they say. Um, Jesus is recognized in two natures, God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as a parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus. So essentially what they're saying is that Jesus is the God-man, that he is fully God and fully man. It's a mystery, and we don't understand it, but it's one of the mysteries of Scripture. So that's the second thing, that Jesus' birth is one of the mysteries of the Bible. And it's okay to have a mystery and to be, be able to hold those, two in, those beliefs in tension because uh, we're not God and we don't have the answers for that. And, um, it, you know, it's just... It's okay to live with... By the way, we do that all the time. Let me just say this for a minute. Maybe one of the things that you struggle with, or you know people who struggle with, well, I can't explain it. If I can't explain it, I can't understand it, and I won't believe it. Oh, really? Go in and have a medical test and, and, and try to explain how some of those machines work, right? You, 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 you're, you all drove a car here. Do you know how to program the computer on your car? No, you just know when the key turns and it doesn't start, you've got a problem. Some of you have no idea what it is that's wrong with it, right? You, you don't understand it, you just use it, you just drive it, you just allow the radiation technician to, to take those images. And to, you, you, there's, so there's a whole bunch, you know, you, you, you're flying on a plane and you, you can't sit in the cockpit and fly that plane. Maybe one or two of you can if you're pilots, but most of us would look and go, I don't know what it's all about, I just get on it and hope that everything goes well. We take off and we land. So there's a whole bunch of things that are mysteries to you in a sense. You can't explain them. And even if somebody tried to explain it, you go, I don't get that. So how is it that we can live with mysteries in a lot of other areas? But we come here and say, no, I can't live with that mystery. I wonder about that. I think we're being a little picky here. So all I'm saying is there's mysteries in life and there's mysteries in the scriptures. And it's okay. That's part of faith. Here's number four. The birth of Jesus is necessary for our salvation. And uh, the birth of Jesus doesn't save you by itself, but it's an essential link in God's plan of salvation. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, it says in Scripture. By the way, everyone in this room is lost. We were born lost, not found. We were born... You know, some people say, well, Jesus came to save sinners. And he came to save bad people, but he also came to save good people. Because here's the thing, none of us is good. The, Paul says in the book of Romans, for we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So if we compare ourselves to one another, we could probably find ourselves being better than average. But when we compare ourselves to God, we all fall short. That's what scripture says, that none of us measure up. We all need to be saved from our sins. We are all guilty. Uh, look at what 1 Peter says. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then he says this, he himself bore our sins. He took our sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So Peter says, we were not looking for God. We were strayed sheep. We were fallen sinners. We were lost. We were helpless and we were hopeless. And so Jesus came and he took our sin upon himself. So Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid the price for our sins. So let me, let me finish our time by, I think, giving you an application that maybe you haven't considered. And that is, number five, the birth of Jesus should humble us. It should humble us. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul writes something very interesting in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That phrase, being made in human likeness, what he's talking about there is the incarnation. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. And it's Mark 10, 45. You see, what the Bible tells us is that we are helpless and we are hopeless. That we are destined for destruction. That he left his throne and he took on the limitations of human flesh. That his humanity was on full display from the beginning to the end. From Bethlehem to Golgotha. Golgotha was the mountain where he was hung on a cross. We should fix our eyes on his humiliation for us. He was on display as a common criminal, executed in a horrible way. This should cause us at least two reactions. And here's where I hope the rubber will meet the road for you this weekend. I hope that the incarnation, I hope maybe that you're thinking better theologically and biblically about the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. But most of all, I hope you leave today and you will be humbled. In two ways. First, that his humbling should humble us. I believe that when we understand it was our sin that placed him on the cross, that we should remember we have nothing to brag about. We should look to the cross and be amazed at how far God would go to save our souls. That he would willingly get off of his throne, come to earth, take upon himself human flesh, the limitations, Live the life we should have lived. Die the death we should have died on the cross. For you and for me. When we look at the cross, we should, it should humble us. There's nothing to brag about. There's nothing to be proud about. 
He was humiliated. He was made a public spectacle for ridicule and brutally beaten, beaten and executed in one of the most horrific ways known to man. This has to humble us. It has to. And if it doesn't, it's just that you don't understand how lost you were and how, how, how unable to save yourself you were. Until we come to realize the weight of our sin and, and, and it was our sin that put him there, that, that, that it was our sin that it was, was laid upon him, that it was our sin that caused all of this. Until we come to that place, then we'll never be broken down and we'll never be humbled. But when you look at the cross and you realize that the God of the universe willingly came off of his throne and climbed upon a cross for you, it should break your heart. It should humble you. Secondly, his humbling should change our relationships. We often pray for people, don't we? Lord, they're mean. Change their heart. Lord, they're angry people. Change them. Lord, they're not nice to me. Help them to be nice to me. And, and we pray for other people. God, fix them, <laughs> right? Fix them, fix them, fix them. Because they're mean, they're, 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 they're foul. They're, and um, we pray, God, help them to be nicer. Help them to be more calm. Help them to be good to me. Uh, change their behavior because they really need it, Right? But a big part of our problem in relationships is we, don't, we won't humble ourselves. We won't admit it when we're wrong. We don't want to lose an argument. We, we, we won't show grace and mercy because we think you don't deserve it. The way, what you said, what you did, you don't deserve it. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Hang on a minute. Did I deserve, was I a good person when he died for me? Was I living a good, righteous? I might have been a good person, but I was far from God. We won't show grace and mercy. We want to point out errors and get revenge. But when we look to the cross, we see the jeering and the cursing, the spitting and the mocking, that he remains silent because he was playing the long game for us. It must humble us. It must change how we approach relationships. How we forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven. How we show grace to people who are difficult and mean. We don't always need to win our, our, win, uh, our arguments to have our rights preserved. When we look to the cross properly, it should break us down. It should show us what we've caused. It should, should make us reflect on his love for us and how, far he, and how far he was willing to go for us. We must come to a place where we drink in the vastness of his love. And when we do this, we'll change our relationships because it changes us. The incarnation ought to change your relationships because it should humble you. And if you are being humbled, you are a different person than you are now. And everyone in this room can use some humbling. And if you're not sure if you've gone far enough, just remember Jesus. 
hanging on the cross, taking the abuse, getting all of the mocking and the beating and the spitting and the curses and all of that was coming on. And he had the power with one word to destroy everyone around him. And he held back because of you, because of me. He played the long game. And he came to serve, not to be served. If the God of the universe would do that for you, what is it taking to keep you from becoming humble? To forgive, to show mercy, to just let it go. That is what the incarnation should do to your heart. Every time you think about it, every time you think about it, you remember that if God would humble himself for me, how in the world can I not do it for others? That will transform your relationships. I guarantee it. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for the example of Jesus who willingly left his throne and took upon himself human flesh. He could have come as a fully developed man, as a king, as a ruler, but he didn't. He came as a baby, an innocent baby that needed to be protected and cared for and nurtured and taught and loved and cradled. It's amazing to me. And yet, when he came to the end of his life, when everyone around him was mocking him and just cursing him, abandoning him. He hung in there for us. He humbled himself to the point of dying, not just dying, but on a cruel cross between two criminals. And everyone there thought of him as just a common criminal. The God who created the heavens. It's just mind-boggling. So, Father, may our reflection on that, the birth the life and the death of Jesus. May it humble us. May it humble us in our relationships so that we overlook sins and hurts that people make against us. That we forgive even when the other person isn't repentant. That we would show mercy when the other person doesn't deserve mercy. Because that's exactly what you did for us. We're so grateful. We're so thankful. Break our hearts, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.